Now, those of you who are just joining us on the internet, we are just taking moments of thanking and giving praise. Now let's take some moments and let's look into God's Word. Join me in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I wanted to test you to see if you were wide awake this morning. Okay, you sounded a little bit lethargic, but man, did you come to life just these last couple of minutes. Great job. If you need notes, raise your hand. The ushers are going to hand that to you. We're going to Ephesians 5. Here's what I want to do. I want to follow up what we talked about last week. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about New Year's resolutions. And we said that there's a resolution that every Every single one of us can and should make, and it was this. I will remain faithful to God no matter what happens this next year. Now, I'm going I'm to modify that somewhat and see how this would apply to you because this is a truism based on if you say, I'm going to remain faithful to the Lord, that's going to impact this next thought. That means, as well, you're not going to give up on His church because the church is the body of Christ. The church is where Christ gathers and meets with people on a regular basis. The church is something that's very, very close to the heart of Christ. Let me show you that from Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, this is a text that's talking about husbands and wives, and he's talking in, the, in this whole idea, and we're going to talk about some of this tonight, in fact, about parenting and dealing with children. But let's pick up in chapter 5, verse 21. He says to husbands and wives, Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives, and he goes on. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish, so ought men also to love their own wives, etc., etc. And then he says, verse 29, For no man ever yet hates his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes his flesh, even as the Lord, the church... He goes, talks a little bit more. And then he, down in verse, in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined to, to his wife, they shall become one flesh. I speak a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. Though he is applying in this passage to husband and wife relationship, he is using it as an analogy, and he's giving us some parallel truths about Christ and you. Christ and you who are his believers. And if you look at the text and just pull out real quickly, there's several very important thoughts about Christ and his church, Christ and his bride. He makes it very clear that he loves his bride dearly, even as the husbands are to love their wives. He loves you who are his church. He knows as well that we find out that he says we're not, we're not perfect. He's working with us where he's trying to sanctify and cleanse us. And let's, let's just make sure that everybody understands. Those of us who gather on a Sunday, we are not perfect people. Amen? Okay, okay, now we agree with that. Those of you who walked in who are visiting and say, this is a perfect place, it's not. Okay, we're not perfect people. We don't claim to be perfect people. We are sinners saved by grace, but we are still sinners. We also understand this, that Jesus Christ is determined to provide and protect his church. The husband... He's supposed to, he goes on and says, husband, men, they take care of their own bodies. He uses the analogy that people do this, that we nourish, we tarry, we take care of our bodies. So Christ is taking care of his body, his bride. And so he makes all these comments. Our big question has to be this morning, well, what is the church? What, when he talks about it, now some of you were just with us last week in the Sunday school and then this morning, you're ahead of the others. Okay, but let me answer just in a brief fashion. When we talk about church, when it's showing up in this text, what Jesus has in mind are people. He's not saying, I love a cathedral. I love a denomination. I love a service time at 1030. That's not what he means. He's talking about the people. It's the people that he is ahead of a group of people. It's the people that he gave his life for, not a building, not for some concrete or mortar, not for stained glass. It's the idea that he says, I'm preparing something to present to myself. It is, not, it is not the facility. It is the people who gather in the facilities. When he talks about it in this text, he is saying, when I talk about the people, I'm talking about saved people, born-again people, redeemed people, converted people. All those terms are biblical terms, and then they come back to the idea of believers in Jesus Christ. Those who have at one point asked him to be their savior. He says he's the savior of the body. 
That means that it's the people who at some point in their life, whether they are children, whether they are teens, whether they are adults, or whether they are older folk, we heard on Wednesday night that one of, our, one of our families was out doing rest home ministries in the last couple of weeks. They shared the gospel as they were doing that on a Sunday afternoon. And a gentleman in his 90s or close to 100 prayed and asked Christ to get saved. It doesn't make any difference what your age is. It doesn't make any difference what your background is. We need to be people who ask Jesus to be the Savior. And the analogy is wonderful out of this text. Just as a husband and wife they come to a point in their life where they say, I take you to be my spouse. You need to come to a point where you say, I take you, Jesus, to be my Savior. Because I know that I can't get to heaven in and of myself. I'm not going to take a church. I'm not going to take baptism. I'm not going to take knowledge as my Savior. The Bible says, you are my Savior. I take you. I want you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins and to give me eternal life. Because you love me so much, you died for me so that I can have forgiveness. So it's people who are saved individuals, who are united with Christ, who have taken them into their heart and become part of his spiritual body. Something else that's in this passage. He is called the head of these people. The idea says as the church is subject, God assumes something in this text. He assumes that the people who go to church are subject to him. The people who gather, who say we're part of a church, that they are willing to do whatever he wants. Well, therefore, we know that not everybody in every gathering would fit that category. That there might even be some here this morning that say, well, I'm a people. Okay, that's good. I'm saved. I hope you are. But some may not be subject to Christ. The church is comprised of individuals who are born again who have submitted to the Lord in little things like baptism after they've been saved, in little things like they want to forgive others, that they want to live a life that is glorifying to Him. He describes the church in another sense. He says that are people who are growing spiritually. He says in the text that He might keep on sanctifying, cleansing these people through the Word of God. Like I said already, we are not perfect people. We don't claim to be perfect people. We will, we will, will sadly but, but loudly say we are imperfect. We still have area to grow in. So when you say, well, I don't want to go to church because everybody thinks that they're perfect, well, maybe you're going to the wrong group. Okay? The fact is, those who are Bible believers, who are part of the real, the, that, that type of body that Jesus associates with, they are people that Jesus knows he still has room to work with. That they need to be growing. They need to be uh, being purified. That they, they are still with stains, but he's going to present them one day without the wrinkles, without the spots. So we have people who make the church save people, people who are submissive to him, people who are growing, people who have an assurance that they're on their way to heaven. How do I know that from this text? That he might present them to himself a glorious church. They have it in their minds and in their hearts based on his promise that these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. That is, individuals who are saying, I know, I'm confident that I'm going to be going to heaven. Hey, we place confidence in a whole lot of things. Okay? I place confidence that I'm not going to fall off these steps when I go back and forth, and I almost did. Okay? Some of you caught that. Okay? I saw you snickering. Okay? Sometimes we place confidence in, in things that are not real certain. Well, the one thing that is absolutely certain is Jesus Christ. That when he says, I give unto you eternal life, he gives us eternal life. And we have that confidence, not because of us, but because of him. That when he saves us, that when we say, Jesus, I want you to be the one in control of my life, that he gives to us eternal life that will never, ever, ever run out or perish or lose steam. We're on our way to heaven. And so he gives that, that idea. Now, it's part of that, that that goes with, and he's talking to a group of people that have Jewish concepts in their mind, that there's a time when they would do their weddings that they would get betrothed. Okay, there are different stages. That is the engagement period. If you were back in Bible culture, your best man would go and propose to the family of the one you wanted to marry. And he would make the arrangements and make the deal. And so then what happens after that time, then you have the preparation. There's usually about nine months to a year in Bible days that they would prepare. The husband would be build the house get it ready for the wife after they, lived, after they have their wedding and live together. The bride would prepare her dishes, her tableware, whatever her, that she would want. Then there would be the procession. This is the wedding ceremony kicking off. 
that instead of driving around afterwards, they would go and pick, he would go and pick her up with the group and parade through the streets back to the parents' house where there would be the ceremony where the parents would pronounce a blessing. Maybe a community leader or a guest of the community might pronounce a blessing. And then they would start celebrating for days or days. And then they would have their, their relationship. They would start their family living together after that. Well, in the Bible, we're talking about Jesus Christ coming back. Jesus Christ is betrothed to us. He has, we are betrothed to him. He has made the payment. He has given his life. He has resurrected. He is now in the preparation process. That preparation process is what he talks about in John 14, that I will come again and receive you unto myself. Any day he could come back. And that would then be when he would gather us and take us to his home in heaven to live in his father's house like you had in those days. And so when we gather, we're saying as a church body, we know Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to go to be with him. Now that's exciting stuff. That's something to, to be enthusiastic about. Even though it's cloudy day, even though it's going to rain some more this week, okay, we're going to one day be in heaven. And there's that thrill about those things. There's one little girl that went to church, and she had been hearing in the junior church, had been hearing about Jesus and Jesus coming back. And so after church, she's talking to her mom. And she asked her mom, she says, Mom, do you believe Jesus is really coming back? Mom says, yes, I absolutely do. And so they're at home, and they're, they're getting ready for you know, other things around the house, and she continues the conversation. Do you think that Jesus could come back today? Mom's response, yes, he could. Do you think he could come back in the next few minutes, the little girl now with her eyes wide open? Yes, I do. The little girl thought for a moment, and then she had this really profound thought. She says, Mommy, then you better comb my hair so I look my very bestest when Jesus comes back. Now, that childlike faith is what we need to have that we are getting ready and we're anticipating he's coming back. Now that's what we mean by church. And in the Bible, it's usually those people that, that are in a local area. It's not all over the world. It's people who gather in small groups like this group. And that, that comprises the idea of the concept of church that Jesus says, I want you to, to get together, to encourage and to work and to grow. And yet, there are times when individuals, it's really tough to get together. It's going to be really tough at times this year. You're going to be tempted to say, okay, do I really need to get together with others? Do I really need the church body? And, and it, gets, it gets hard. It's like any resolution. The resolutions that, that at times it's difficult for us to do, sometimes because we don't have a plan or a goal. Okay? We say, I'm going to lose weight, but we don't have a plan or a goal to go about, and we usually fall, fall flat. Or sometimes the resolutions don't work because we let other things get in the way. Other things all of a sudden take the priority. We don't mean them to, but that's what happens. Sometimes it just so happens because we just lack discipline. We just don't do what we're supposed to do because we just don't make ourselves do what we're supposed to. Paul Railton over in England has been nominated on site for being the laziest man of the year. The reason being is that when he took his dog for a walk, this is the way he did it. He didn't want to walk, so he drove. And wherever the dog would go, he would drive on sidewalks, through other people's yards, through the park. So he got reported that he was a dangerous driver. When the police came and they ticketed him, and then he being hauled before court, he ends up speaking to the judge, and the judge says, why did you drive over so-and-so's lawn? Why did you drive over the public park? Why did you knock down that fence in somebody's yard? Why didn't you get out and walk your dog like a normal person? And his response was, I was just too lazy to. Well, his laziness cost him several hundreds in their currency, plus six months without a ticket or without a license, without a license. So being lazy, it can cost you. The same thing can happen when we say, I don't want to give up on church, but we do because we're not disciplined, because we let other things get in the way. Can I show you from the book of Acts the benefits of being involved in church? The benefits of being involved with God's bride, with that which he loves. Acts chapter 2. Let me just fly through this section for this morning. We're going to be talking the next few weeks about church and worship. But in order to do that, let's just set up the scene. Before we can talk about how to worship and what is proper worship, we've we got to lay it out that you need to be where worship is taking place when it comes to the corporate community worship of a church. And in Acts chapter 2, it gives me several ideas out of this text of why it is important for you and me to not forsake the assembling of ourselves, to get involved, to participate, to be in church that God says we ought to be. In Acts chapter 2, 
we start off in verse 42. It says, or 41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized the same day there were added unto them <coughs> about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers. Let's just pause there. When we, these people in the book of Acts were consistently attending their gathering, they benefited. They, obviously, they continued in steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The idea is they were learning. They were learning more about God. They were learning more about God's word. That they were benefiting from that idea. This teaching, this training is the very first item mentioned about how that church functioned and the benefits of it. Which says to me, who, who as a leader here in the church, that this is one of our first and primary activities, is to be teaching about God, to be teaching about the Word of God, to be giving that information, giving that type of, of inspirational message. In fact, when we think about it, in Acts chapter 6, when the preachers were getting preoccupied all of a sudden, pulled away by taking care of some of the things with the widows, they, were to they stopped and they said, wait a minute, we need to be studying the Word of God. We need to be preaching the Word of God. We need to be teaching it. But now all of a sudden we're getting, we're getting pulled away by a necessary thing, taking care of some of the widows who need their help with, with physical things, their homes, their gutter systems, their leaves, whatever it may be. And they said, we need some help. We need to appoint some others in the church to focus on that so that we can focus on the primary job that we're supposed to do. That is the preaching, the teaching of the Word of God in prayer. When Paul and Barnabas went into the city of Antioch, it says that they assembled there with the, with the believers and they taught the people. That was their main focus. In Corinth, Paul says that when he went there for 18 months, that he was teaching the Word of God amongst them. When we go into 1 Timothy and say, what is the job of the pastor? One of the first qualifications is he has to have the ability to teach. Well, why would that be a necessary requirement if his job isn't teach, teach? Teach the Word of God. Now, some of you would say, wait a minute, I can learn the Bible in and of myself. I have the Holy Spirit. That is true. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And that Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth. That Holy Spirit is going to help you to understand the Word of God. I absolutely understand that. I believe that with my whole heart, that the Holy Spirit assists us. But to say, okay, the Holy Spirit is assisting me, therefore I don't need the assembling. I don't need to go to church on a regular basis because I can learn on my own. That's like you saying, or your child saying to you, I don't need to go to school, I can learn everything I need on my own. By the way, most of us as kids believe this, okay? The, uh, most of us think we can learn everything we can and need by doing it on our own. Okay? Now, I, and I also understand that generations ago, some didn't have the same amount of schooling as we did, but we live in a different world. And let's be practical, let's be frank about it. If you say, if that, if that sixth grader says, I don't need to go to school anymore, I'm, I'm going to learn everything I need for life on my own, they're going to limit themselves. They limit themselves to only what they can understand. They limit themselves because they won't be stretched by a teacher, by somebody who's challenging them to learn more. They're going to focus on learning those things which are easy, those things which they like. There are certain subjects that we don't like, but they're good for us to learn, okay? and they're beneficial. That's the same thing when it comes to studying the Word of God. There are certain passages, certain parts that we say, I'm going to study, but when we gather together and we as a corporate group study the Word of God, it is beneficial for us. So what we need to do is grow in our knowledge. And part of what God has set up is coming together and have somebody teach us about God and about His Word to help us to expand our knowledge and our understanding of Scripture more and more and more. But there's another benefit of going to church. You get to celebrate communion. You get to celebrate it on a regular basis. It says that they continued in the apostles' doctrine, you see in verse 40, 43, and it's, uh, 42, and in the breaking of the bread. Now that phrase, the breaking of the bread, remember this book is written by Luke. Luke writes about that in his gospel and uses the phrase, same phrase for the idea of the Lord's Supper, of what we call communion service. And it is the only service in the New Testament that it's commanded for us to practice when we get together. Now we're told that we should preach, we're told as well that we should sing, we're told that we should pray, but he says very specifically, when you gather together as often as you choose, choose, make sure you have regular communion services, that you do it on a regular periodic basis. We get the option as long as we choose or as often as we choose, but we're supposed to be doing it. Now some will say, well, wait a minute, I can do it on my own. I can just take it at home. That's not biblical. 
Communion service is not to be practiced at home in and of yourselves whenever you feel like it. Because the Bible says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together, this is the passage about communion, twice he says, when you come together, when you come together, and he's writing to a church. And so communion is one of those, one of those rites, those practices that are supposed to be practiced by the church as a whole that we get together periodically, and it's very meaningful. You do it in remembrance of Jesus. It helps us to reflect upon him, to remember what he has done. And we're supposed to, as well, examine ourselves. This is helpful for us. We do it once a month. And so it's helpful for us to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to challenge, am I really doing what I'm supposed to do? It's a beneficial service. There are memorials that you see, that you go to. Whenever we do a, a, a funeral at the Gap, the one thing that I'm always moved by the crosses through the Gap But then the other thing that always moves is the taps. Oh, you're just moved because you're reminded. And it's the visual, it's the the setting. He is saying communion is like that. Communion is a visual. Communion is an audible audible setting where you hear and you reflect, where you think about Christ and it's supposed to be moving us to giving thanks, thinking about Christ. And he says that it is like those memorials that we have that, that when you go and you stand there, you think about, wow, this happened here. At the communion table, we're supposed to, wow, he died for me. And so he says this is a benefit for us to get together. And so like tonight when we gather, there's a benefit of being here so you can celebrate communion. And as we do that to be on a monthly basis to take advantage of it, there's a third benefit according to this text. That in that New Testament church, he's talking about how these individuals, as they gathered together, that 3,000 plus, it says that the fear came upon every soul. Many wonders were done, and all the believers had things common. They sold their possessions. They, at the end of verse 42, they had prayer. And it says in verse 46, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that is that they were still allowed to being able to use the temple rooms that were in the antechambers. And then they even got together in their homes on a regular basis, did eat their meat with gladness, singleness of heart, praising God and having favor. Those two ideas of worship, Praying and praising, praying and praising. They keep on coming up. Now, I understand we're supposed to pray in private. Jesus said that when, when you and I get together, we're not supposed to be like the heathen who does things for show, the hypocrites, I should say, who does it for show, like the Sadducees, that they blow a trumpet. Here they come through the, through the uh, marketplace, and everybody's supposed to stop and look, and they made great pretense. He said, don't do that. When you pray, in fact, go and enter into your closet, your private place. I understand we're supposed to do that. Our prayer time is not supposed to be what we do here. Our vital prayer time is what we're supposed to do personally, privately. I think it's a shame that if the only praying that I were to do, or somebody else who would lead us in prayer, that this is their most, their most praying they do in the whole week would be when it's here, that, that would be hypocritical. That'd be wrong. And so we need that private prayer, but... Public prayer is also strongly encouraged in Scripture. We read in multiple passages, like in 1 Timothy, he writes and he says, I'm writing these things to the church so you know how you ought to behave yourself. And in the beginning of the chapters, in the second chapter, he says that this is the thing. By the way, it should be 2.15, not 3.15. In the beginning of that, of that chapter, he says, this is the first thing I want you to do when you gather together. That first of all, I exhort you that prayer be made for all men and for kings and those in authority. And so he goes on, he talks about in that text that I would have the men everywhere, all the different churches, that the men would be involved leading in prayer, lifting up holy hands. Paul writes to the church in, in Ephesus, and he says, pray for me as your missionary. Pray that I'd have boldness. This idea of praying together is seen through the book of Acts. Time and time again, they pray together as a group. It's good for us to pray together. It's good for you to join when we set aside prayer times. It's a benefit to your spirit, to your spiritual life, as well as a benefit to the body and to those that we're praying for. To say, well, well, I don't need that. Well, God's word says you should have that. That the more you gather and get involved, the bigger these benefits will be in your growth and knowing about God, in your idea of being able to worship in that communion service, to draw closer to the Lord. It's good for you and I to participate and not to forsake the assembling because it'll help us in our own walk. There's a gentleman by the name of Robert Robinson. You, you've uh, probably seen his name this morning already. He is a poet. 
And the story is told that there in, in London, he is, in days of old, he's walking along the street and he hears off in the distance a church bell. And he's just, he is so sullen, so sad. And he sees people going past him. And they're headed for that church building. And it's a day like it started off here early this morning. It's cloudy and it's a little bit damp. And he's just, he feels that inside. He feels the cold, but even worse, his heart is cold. And as he's walking along, he's thinking, maybe I should go to church, but I haven't been in church in years. It used to be some of the sweetest times of my life, but I've been so far away from the Lord. I'm going to go. So he hails the next cabbie, that horse-drawn uh, taxi that comes along. He hails it down, and as he reaches for, and opens the door to get in, to go to the church that he hears the bells to, he looks inside and there's a young lady. Oh, sorry, I didn't realize it was taken. She says, no, sir, we can share. Are you headed for church? And he goes, well, strange to say yes. And she says, well, come on in, we'll share. They exchange pleasantries for a moment, and then she, you know, she tells him her name, and he says his name, that my name is Robert Robinson. And she's taught, yeah, yeah. And, and all of a sudden she stops, and she looks at the book that's on her lap, flips it over, and she says, it couldn't be. He says, what's that? She says, you couldn't be the Robert Robinson that penned all these poems. And he looks down, and sure enough, it's the book that he had authored that he had written these, this poetry too. And she says, ah, my heart is so blessed by your poetry. I have been so encouraged. She says, especially this one. I was just reading here on my way to church. It is one of the most beautiful poems I have ever read. And he, she, you know, she hands him the book, he looks at it, and he starts weeping. You, you know it. You sang it this morning. It's the song, it's the poem, it's Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it goes on. And as he's reading, he's thinking, I used to think this. I used to feel this way. I used to, you know, pray and talk to the Lord. And he says, but right now I feel like, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be, oh. He's thinking about his wandering. And she sees by his body language, she senses by his, by his response that he is really struggling spiritually. And as they're getting closer to the church, she says to him these words. She said, you used to be close to the Lord. He says, yes. And she says, but you've been wandering. Yes. And she quotes and says, read those last lines. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. She says, your soul is still sealed. You just need to get back to the Lord. He was so moved at that moment how what he was and where he's at that he went into the church, and even before the service got too far underway, he recommitted his life to the Lord. Do we need those moments in praise and worship? Do we have those moments we come for worship that sometimes we just need to, we just need to be called back to the Lord? It happens to us. There's another benefit. It increases your opportunities to fellowship. It says in this text that they steadfastly in the apostles' fellowship. It talks about them having meat in with one another by, and by engaging one another. That they had all things together that were in common. That word common has the idea of sharing. It has the idea, that koine idea of, of fellowship that's vital to all of us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this. Paul is, or whoever is writing the book, is writing to the Hebrew Christians, and he's writing to those who are Jewish in background, who are starting to go away from the Christian assemblies, and some are starting to go all the way back to their Jewish roots and their Jewish religion and rituals, and he's writing and saying, the whole book is all about, wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't need to go back to the sacrifices, you don't need to go back to the temple, Christ is the sacrifice, Christ is your mediator, you don't need to go back to the priest, you, you need to just stay close to Christ, and as he gives that whole argument, he makes this, this comment towards the very end. He says, and let us consider one another. You need encouragement. You need help. Let us consider one another to provoke one another to good works, while not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and doing all this so much as you see the day approaching, the, the end days. According to this text, we're supposed to be building up each other in the faith. We're supposed to be prompting each other, stirring each other up. We're supposed to be exhorting each other to do what is right. 
Now, a lot of you do that normally, but some of us don't. Some of us need prodding. Some of us need reminding to be charitable. Some of us need reminding not to be so critical, but to be more content and more thankful. Most of you don't, but there are some of us here. We need to be reminded about how we're supposed to love and how we're supposed to treat our family members and how we're supposed to make it a point to be able to pray. Some of you don't struggle with reading your Bible, but some of us do. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of guarding our tongues. We need to be encouraged and exhorted at times to be honest and people of integrity in all areas, including with our families and not exaggerate. And all the, we need that. We need to be, be reminded we shouldn't gossip. We need to be reminded that we're supposed to be individuals that give our bosses the very best and that we don't slough off at work or steal from them by stealing time. We need that, some of us. Some of you don't. Some of you got it all together in those areas. But there's a lot of us who need that reminding and we get it from one another. We get the reminding at times when we share about some of the battles, some of the struggles, and some of the, some of the experiences that we have. And he says, do that. When you get together, make sure that you help one another out. And in this text, he's saying, not just your family, your blood family, but your bigger family. Not just focus on a few, but focus on the body and encourage and build up. Some come here and sometimes some come in and they're very discouraged. They're very disappointed. They've been having a rough week. They heard cancer. They heard job loss. They heard illness. They heard some things about a friend breaking up with them. They just lost what they thought was going to be their life's partner. And they need that encouragement, that exhorting, that comfort that can come from you. And he says, do that. Reach out to others in the body. And he says, it so, can so easily happen when you gather together on a regular basis, but it won't happen when you don't gather. It won't happen when you're separated, when you're all over the place. And he says in this passage, the gathering is important for this reason. In fact, he doesn't command us to gather. He doesn't say, I, I command you to go to church. That's not what the text says at all. He does it in a stronger sense. He commands us not to stop going to church. He's assuming that we do on a regular basis. And he says, don't stop. Don't forsake the assembling. Why? We need to be prompting and building up one another, especially as we're in the latter days when it's harder and harder to live as a Christian. When the world gives more temptations, when, it is, when you're told just to bail on the family by society, but the Word of God says, no, no, work at it, work at it, work at it. We need the encouragement. And so in the passages of Scripture, we find that it, this assembly idea is really, really important. You, it's important for you to get, it's important for you to give encouragement and blessings, but it can't happen when you're not here. When you don't gather on a regular basis. I wish right now we could Skype. I wish I could Skype some of our people that we visited in the last couple of weeks. I wish I could have them on the screen and them talk to you where they could say to you, where they could say, you don't know how important it is to be with the other brothers and sisters, how helpful that is, until all of a sudden you can't. Maybe Carol and Jim, I could Skype with them. They're probably listening right now. And they would say, ah, oh, health prohibits us from being able to get here on a regular basis but we miss it so much, just the, the fellowship, the encouragement. Wish you could have sit with me. And Don and Becky are talking about her cancer this week. And she is saying, I crave, I miss because of my, my terminal cancer now. I miss being able to come to church and to just talk and to share. You have said that more often than not. And this morning we had that conversation just quickly. That you said, today I can be here despite my cancer situation. I'm able to be here today. Folk, how many times do we take things for granted until we can't? And God's word says, don't take for granted the assembly. Don't take for granted the church. Get involved in it. It is so beneficial for you. Can I give you other benefits? you'll find opportunities to minister. I am always amazed by this when somebody says, uh, you know, there's no need for anybody to minister. There's no places to minister at your church. It's like, 
really? Everything is covered? I didn't know that. I don't hear that. There are so many up in this passage, their struggles that they're having is there are peoples in the church that just can't get, keep jobs. They're, they're, they're being persecuted. At this moment, they're, you know, they're realizing that, wait a minute, we're still able to do some, some working, but some of our families are starting to resist us. And so he's saying, okay, listen, you have people in the church, some are with real needs. And by the way, you look in our community, we get needs. We get these phone calls all the time. We get phone calls on almost a weekly basis of people who are asking us to give them money, that they have a need, they have a need, they have a need. And we've helped out. Recently, we've helped out one that within 24 hours after we helped out, I found out from the reliable party that they ripped us off. They gave a wonderful story. They got some financial help to pay their, their utilities, their rent, or their rent it was, and they didn't use it for that. They used it for drugs. And we got ripped off, okay? Does that happen? Yes. Are we, are we going to know every situation, even though we put up safeguards and interview and do all those things? Can somebody still pull the wool over our eyes? I understand that. And I'd rather err on the side of being generous than being not generous, okay? But I am still cynical and skeptical. And so when people say, okay, okay, how do we help people out? You preach at times, help the poor. I am typically very confident in my heart to say that the vast, 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 vast majority of people that we help through the church funds, that they are helping people. And so my opportunity to be able to minister to people who have needs, I'm very confident that through the church, those are real needs in 99% of the time. And it's not some type of fraudulent thing, though I recognize sometimes it happens. And so doing and giving and being charitable through the church is just a safe way of helping people out. Being able to help people out sometimes who have a need. And it's not the same need as in the book of Acts, but it's a need that some people need to be taught the word of God. Well, that happened in the book of Acts. Some youngsters need to be taught, here's a place to serve. Some have a need to be able to take a break and focus on the Word of God. They can't do it because they have a little one. And that little one kind of takes a lot of time. Moms, yes. Okay. You have an infant. You can't just leave them for the night. You want to. But you can't leave them for the night. They demand and they need. And sometimes those moms... They need somebody to watch the child so that they can just sit and learn the Word of God. Nursery is helpful. Junior churches are helpful. Ushering is helpful. Cleaning is helpful. Visiting the widows is helpful. Ministering in ways that, wow, God says, here's opportunities for you to minister through church by participating and getting involved. God using your gifts, your talents in whatever way. There's an individual that I was reading about history. Did you ever hear of David Atchison? He was president of the United States. He filled in between Polk and Zachary Taylor because when Polk's term expired on that night at midnight, the next day Taylor was to be sworn in, but he was dedicated to his church and said, I'm not going to be sworn in. It happened to be on a Sunday that the swearing in fell that year. He said, I'm not missing church to be sworn in to be president. So they had Atchison become president for a day so that there was somebody there in Washington, though he overslept until the middle of the afternoon. He slept most of his presidency away. <laughs> Afterwards, they asked Taylor, they said, why in the world wouldn't you give up going to church? You know, so that they could have the swearing in. And his comment was this, going to church and serving there is a higher priority than becoming president of the United States. Amen. What an attitude putting God ahead of even all of our other responsibilities. There's, a, there's another benefit. Let me just run through these last few quickly. There's joy and gladness, the praising, the gladness that he talks about, that increases. You know, when we get together and we start singing songs and reflecting on how God has been good to us, 
It's helpful for us to get out of our slumber and out of our woe. It's helpful for us to think about God answering prayers and hearing how God is working and praying together and worshiping. It increases our joy. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think I remember times where I've been too joyful. Okay, I don't remember times when the gladness is way beyond anything that I can handle. Usually, I need a little bit more dose of joy. I need a little bit more joy, a little bit more gladness. And here is one place that I can get it. I can get it by your fellowship, by you and us singing together. For me, this is me, this is me. This is, I like sitting right here because one, I'm not distracted. Okay. Two, I can sit and listen. You're all behind us. And oftentimes, Deb and I will say, just, just she'll lean over, I'll lean over and just say, don't sing. Just listen. And it's usually so beautiful until Dave, you start singing. Then, then I... <laughs> I love you, brother. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Uh, you'll never come back, I know, but... <laughs> Just the blessing of hearing people rejoice in the Lord. It's an encouragement. Can I give you something else that's a benefit? Okay. It helps you with your priorities. In the Greek, it comes out better than it does in the English. And especially in that in the King James, where it talks about singleness of heart. The word is from the idea of taking a, a stone and finding a smooth stone, one that has come, one without rough edges. And it came to be used with the idea that all of a sudden, people who had singleness of heart were people that were fixed, people that were, you know, they were simple. They weren't distracted. They didn't have rough edges. And so what we're talking about is this idea of singleness of heart is come together, and what this benefits is it helps us to get rid of the rough edges in our life. It helps us to keep our priorities simple. And by the way, our priorities are real simple. We have two of them. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and love others as yourself. And by coming together, it's a reminder. It's a helpful tool. Now, I have to ask myself this question. Do I need to be having my priorities refreshed periodically? Do I need to learn more about God? Do I need to be re more reflective on Christ? Do I need an increase at all of my spiritual worship towards God? Do I need encouragement from and to be more of an encouragement to others? And I have to answer in my own heart, yes, 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 these are all needs in my life. And God says, here's one place that needs can all be met. You don't get enough of it, I don't get enough of it, so don't forsake the gathering. Don't give up on it. Here, give me number eight. I need lots of this. I need to improve my witness to the lost. Maybe you've got it down pat. Maybe you witness up a storm and, and you are just vibrant with it. I'm not. And so this idea of getting together is helpful for me in witnessing. And for the people in the book of Acts, it was helpful. It says that they had favor with all people. Why? Because people could see what they were doing. How they were learning the word of God. How they had joy. How they had gladness. How they were caring for one another. They were able to, to see that these people were different. And these, they, were, they were moved by it. In fact, the passage talks about at this time they're able to go to the temple. The persecution starts a couple chapters later. But as they go, and it made a difference. The people were looking and they were all of a sudden reaching these people. Can, can I highlight a couple things? Okay, with this idea of the Lord adding and people getting saved. It's the Lord who is doing the adding. It wasn't a program and it wasn't some, some fancy thing they did. God was using them and God was saving the people. There wasn't some fundraiser, it wasn't some church growth program, it was just God moving. And God was moving in the hearts of those individuals who were genuine, and they were getting saved. Oh, let me clarify, because the, the way the King James reads, it says some should be saved. Some have concluded that this passage is teaching that God only wants a few people saved, such as should be saved. That's not what it says at all. In the original language, it's literally the ones being saved. The ones being saved. The Lord was adding to the church the ones being saved. That God wasn't picking or choosing some, but God was just working in the hearts of people and some were responding. They were getting born again and they were being added to the church and they were growing in their faith. I look at this and I say, you know what this teaches me? That the early Christians did not isolate from the community. They were going where there was darkness and they were spreading light. 
They were engaging people in their immediate community. They weren't just thinking about people in Europe or people in Asia or people in Africa. They were thinking about people in their own hometown. I'd look and say that they made an impact by their generosity, by their interaction with one another, by their learning God's word, by their love for the Lord. They made an impact so to the point that they were infectious, that people around them at their workplace were saying, you know, what, what happened to you this weekend? And they were just sharing, and they were thrilled, and it made a difference. It should make a difference for us, that we who are worshiping the right way, I hope, that we would broadcast the word, that we would reach other people with the gospel, that we working together would do witnessing here in this community more and more and more. I need this group. I need you to help me in my witnessing, to help me to keep it a priority, to help to learn how to do it, to help to interact, to, to be able to create avenues and venues that at times helps to be able to share the gospel with my neighbors. Working as a team to, to reach out. But so many of us, we gather in a room like this and we just say, okay, that, well, whatever happens to the others happens to the others. I told you this story a couple years ago about Christopher Circe. He's playing basketball. And a drive-by car goes by and they shoot, uh, fire the gun out the window. He takes a bullet to the chest. He's 18 years old, he collapses. They pick him up, his friends there, they were playing basketball, and there's a hospital just across the street and down a little bit. They carry him, though he's wounded. They carry him as far as they can and then they stop because they're so worn out. They're in the parking lot 40 feet from the front door. They run inside with what breath his friend had, and he says, you need to come out. Our friend's just been shot. He's out there. And they were told by the medical people there at the hospital, it is our policy we do not treat anybody until they're inside the doors. Finally, a police officer showed up, grabbed the boy, carried him in. Once they got him in, he was treated. I fear that sometimes there's an attitude amongst believers that we don't reach the world unless the world comes inside our doors. We don't reach out. You say, well, that's not my attitude. Great, good. I hope it's not. What have you been doing lately? Who have you been reaching lately? Who have you been going out and finding who's wounded spiritually? This helps us to be challenged that way, to reflect on it that way, to think about this is our job. This gathering is designed to help us to re reflect and rethink what we're doing. So what about it? What about it? It's very simple. God blesses you and I if we participate in church. Now, isn't this strange? I'm preaching it to you and you're here. This is basically for people who aren't here. So why did I preach it? Because maybe some of you will choose not to be here next week or the week after or when we have communion, and you're missing out. You're missing out on what God says that he will help you to do. Maybe you've gotten out of the habit of attending regularly, and you're just saying, okay, I, I, just, I just need a little bit to make my, my weekly 50-minute, one-hour, well, with me, two-hour commitment, okay. and then it just satisfies. If that's all church is, you're not getting these blessings. Church is supposed to be helping you spiritually. Therefore, if I want more of the benefits, I've got to be more involved. We, we have to ask ourselves this question. What are you doing? Are you willing to participate in, in church in that aspect more and more? There was a young man that was talking about, oh, before I do that, somebody wrote this. A Christian not involved in his church is like this. A student who doesn't go to school. A soldier who doesn't join the army. A citizen who doesn't vote or pay taxes. A salesman who doesn't have customers. A seaman without a ship. A businessman on a deserted island. So a person that doesn't get involved with church. An author who doesn't have readers. A tuba player without an orchestra. Or a parent without a family. One young man was burdened. And he was challenged about how he needed to dedicate more to the Lord. So he'd just been saved a few weeks and he said, okay, God, this is what I'm going to do. And he took a piece of paper and he wrote down, I'm going to, here's what I, I've got this to give you, I've got this to give you, I've got this to give you, I've got this to give you. And he was planning 
after he wrote this list, to come and during a church service to come before and just kneel down before the Lord and say, God, I'm going to lay this before you and this is what I'm dedicating. But when he got to church that day, he's going, something's not right with this. Something's wrong with my list. He went home and thought about it and thought, oh, all I'm giving God right now is, is things that I have. I need to give God things that I will have or be. So he started writing down, God, I'm going to give you, and he started writing down things for the future, including things that, you know, like career-oriented or possession-oriented or income-oriented. He wrote them on down. Came to church the next week. He was going to give it to the Lord. Something's missing. So he went and talked to his pastor afterwards. He was an older gentleman, wise older gentleman. He said, listen, you're doing it all wrong. Instead of writing a list, all you need to do is just put your name at the top and sign your name at the bottom and let the Lord fill it in. You need to let God say what you're going to do. What list are you giving God today when it comes to church? Whatever God wants or the way that you want it? Father, I pray that you would help us with this basic, basic principle of church to be reflective of how important it is for all of us. I pray not that there's a response so that numbers increase. I pray not for a response that there's a show, but I pray for a response that's from the heart, a response of all here to say, God, I want your blessings. What do I need to get more of these blessings? And to follow through with your word. I pray if there's any here who are not born again, that this day they would square that away. And folk, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just a minute here. We have staff headed to the side door. If you're visiting with us, and you do not know you're on your way to heaven, then I would invite you, right now as our staff is headed to the side door, to lift your head and look. You're not sure you're on your way to heaven. These people that are walking that way, just look to where they're going. They are willing to sit and talk with you and show you from the Word of God how you can be sure that you're on your way to heaven. In this next moment, if you would like to make sure that you know that you are on your way to heaven, that you are part of that family of God, that bride of Christ, and you would like to talk with somebody, then why don't you go over to that area where those folks, you just saw them go. In fact, we're going to make it easier. Everybody's going to stand. So if you want to get out of that pew, they can just squeak right past the others. Those of you who are already born again, you've already made that decision. What are you giving Christ right now? What are you planning to give him when it comes to you and church? Father, Thank you so much for this privileged opportunity to be together with these great folk. Bless our fellowship in these minutes afterwards, I pray in your name. Amen.